1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke. To the God who above. Last time, we began our study looking at who Luke was and why his gospel account is important for us to read and study. We found that it's good for us to read these things, that we would know our faith, that we would know it's real, and that God still works in people like he did back in Luke's day. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 1, verse 5.
0: Well, as we introduce the book of Luke with the first four verses last week, Luke said he was writing to Theophilus that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. That's verse four. So that Luke is to show us how we have a reliable faith. God predicted that certain things would happen. They happened. People who saw them happen were still alive when Luke wrote. And so these words are their combined testimony, a reliable testimony of what we believe. So where does that testimony start? Well, at the beginning. But the beginning is not with Mary and Joseph, which is usually where we think of the beginning of Jesus's story. The story starts with God speaking again for the first time in 400 years. See, at the end of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the last prophet that God sent to his people, the Lord said in verses four through six of chapter four, the last three verses of the Old Testament, he said, I summarize, I'm not sending you any new voices until Elijah comes. Do what I've already told you to do until the Then, So over the next 400 years, Israel observed the rituals of the law more faithfully than they had at any other time in their history. Good, right? One problem. They replaced their relationship to God with the rituals that they performed. And so when we get to the point here in Luke's story... It begins with Israel far from God when the time to send Elijah comes. And yet, God knows that Israel will reject his Messiah if he sends him now. So instead of sending Elijah to prepare the way for the kingdom, he creates another man who will function with the same calling and power Elijah had, John the Baptist. And so chapter 1 introduces us to his parents and the circumstances of his miraculous birth. So chapter 1, begin in verse 5. And here we get the setting for us, and it starts off with the players. Now there was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abeah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So the first player we won't really get to see much of, he's more of a placeholder right now, is King Herod. This is Herod the Great, called such because of his building projects and certainly not because of his character or his political accomplishments. In fact, he's considered one of the most cruelest rulers in all of history. One person said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his family member. But he was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC and he reigned as such for 36 years. That puts the date of this chapter roughly between three and six BC. So that gives us our timestamp for what's going on here. The more integral players here are Zacharias and Elizabeth. Now, Zacharias, it mentions here that he was a priest of the course of Abia. Now, being a priest means he was the descendant of Abraham. I'm sorry, of Aaron. They're all descendants of Abraham. He was a descendant of Aaron, Moses' brother. Aaron, the high priest, he had two surviving sons. He had four total, but God killed two in Leviticus. But he had two surviving sons, I believe Eleazar and Phineas. And those two sons, they ended up having a combined 24 family lines. That's a lot of descendants. Descendants. Now, David, later on when he built the temple, he, uh, he actually couldn't build it, but he got everything ready for it for Solomon to build. And because those 24 families had tons of people in them by that time, they couldn't all serve every day. I mean, they would just stand around twiddling their thumbs. So David created a rotation where one family would serve for a week and then the next family would jump in and they would serve. So 24 rotations lasting 24 weeks. And then when you got done with those, you would start the rotation over again. Zacharias was part of the family of Abiyah. So he was part of the course or the rotation of Abijah. Abia is just the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Abijah, the eighth rotation. And you can see those rotations in first Chronicles 24, if you would so like to study them. Now his wife, Elizabeth, she was also a descendant of priests. She was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. This was a family that understood the cost of ministry. They both grew up in families where they weren't allowed to pursue their own business endeavors. The father, the priest, their time was to be spent studying God's word and teaching it to the people and then serving in the tabernacle. There was three times a year when all the priests would serve. That was during Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles because there was enough work. But other than that, they knew there was a lot of traveling involved, a lot of sacrifice. And so this family, as they got two people, Coming together in that situation. These were two who understood this is not going to be an easy life. We're going to give our lives away to serve the Lord. And they embraced that role faithfully. For verse 6 says, And they were both righteous before God, walking in all His commandments, the ordinances of the Lord, blamelessly. So, two things about them. One, it says that they were both righteous before God, which means they weren't part of the majority of the crowd in Israel that had replaced their relationship with God with rituals. These were two people who knew the Lord. They really knew. Knew him. And it also mentions that they were obedient to his word. These guys didn't just study the scripture and share it with others or tell them what they needed to do. They lived it out practically. So they weren't just religious, these people knew the Lord. And you know what a great question for us. Am I getting to know Jesus better every day? Are you living out what you learn in his word as you read it each day? When I read about these two, I want to be more like these two. I want to be someone who really knows the Lord and lives out his word. Now, while this sounds like a marriage made in heaven, things were. Not perfect for verse seven shares that they had a problem and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they were both now well stricken in years. They were past the point where they might be able to have children now. While that barrenness would bring personal sadness. Back in that day, if you're a woman, your big honor was to have children and lots of them. So I realize that's not the way our culture tends to view motherhood these days, but back then that's how it was viewed. God, of course, talked about the blessings of having children and that is truth. Children are are wonderful blessings. They're an inheritance from the Lord. For her not to be able to have children was a very sad thing. Even though it produced personal sadness it resulted also in like a societal ostracizing. The rabbis listed seven reasons back then a person would be cut off from their relationship with God. The first on that list was a Jew who had no wife or a Jew who has a wife but no child. Both of them were under that first category of those who were cut off by God. So even though Zacharias and Elizabeth were godly people, their peers viewed them as cursed by God, as having some secret sin in their life or just cast off by God because they couldn't have kids. Has someone ever told you that you were cursed by God because of an illness or a tragedy in your life? You know, someone ever told you, say, well, this happened to you because God's mad at you or something like that. Have you ever had anybody tell you that? Listen, don't ever believe that. God does use tragedy or illness at times to discipline us or to get our attention, but he does so because he loves us and he wants to bring us close again. He's always trying to woo us back. He's never trying to push us away. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. The Lord may be saying, listen, I'm trying to get your attention, but it's always to bring you back. It's not to tell you what a miserable wretch you are and how mad I am at you. You David, when he was involved in one of his many times where he fell, one of his many times when he got involved in sin, he prayed and said, Lord, don't chasten me in your hot displeasure, because if that happens, who can stand? Trust me, when, when God's anger bursts forth on somebody, they don't just have a tragedy. They're gone. When God judges, they're gone. So if the Lord is disciplining you, it's because he loves you. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. I discipline my kids because I love them. My father, when he would discipline me, he would say, son, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I don't tell my kids that because that's a lie. But I discipline them because I don't want them to grow up to be brats. I don't want them to grow up to think they can do whatever they want. And the Lord loves us enough that he does the same. But it's not because we're cursed or he's angry at us. He wants to bring us back into a right relationship with him. This scenario makes these two people, though godly people, the unlikeliness of starting places for the birth of God's prophet, right? And that should encourage us when our hopes have gone far past the deadline of being fulfilled. Listen, don't ever forget that things aren't over until God says they are, All right. Don't ever forget that. You say, oh man, we can't even have kids anymore. Well, God does some crazy things. I've watched God do things beyond the deadline of men. So rest in him and trust in him. Well, verse eight, God's now going to announce his prophet's birth. And it says, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the time of incense. So God is going to announce this prophet's birth on what would be considered Zacharias' biggest day. It says, Now it came to pass, verse 8, that while he executed the priest's office, when it was his turn, his family's turn, to do their duties as the priests, it says that according to the custom, verse 9, of the priest's office, His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, when it was your rotation, your family's rotation, you would go and you'd show up at the temple that week. And the way it worked, it was from Sabbath to Sabbath. So you'd actually have one day where you and another family would kind of transition together. So you would already be there. And then the next morning you would wake up early. They would draw lots to figure out which of the four parts you would serve in. There were four places you could serve in to determine what you would do that day. But one of those roles... No priest would ever do it twice. And it was the role of offering incense on the golden altar. Why would he never do it twice? Because while they would need lots of people to prep the altar and to Keep it clean and keep the coals hot under there and stuff, and lots of people to butcher the meat for the animals that were sacrificed, and lots of people to be out there to check the animals as they're coming in for any blemishes or anything else. When the instance is offered, only one person would go in. Only one. This would not be a group effort. This would be the only duty that a priest would perform by himself. And so this was the day that every priest dreamed for. Many considered it the greatest day of their life because they would be just like Aaron was, going in front of the veil that kept the way between the Holy of Holies and the holy place. And they would go right before that veil, right at the, where the golden altar of incense was in front of the veil. And they would present their prayers for the nation, for the people. It was a big deal because during that time, as we see in verse 10, the entire temple would go silent as the priests would fall on their faces and ask God to accept that chosen one's prayer for the nation. So we see here the whole multitude of the people, they were praying outside at the time of the incense. So this is Zacharias's moment. I would imagine year after year that as the lots were drawn and Zacharias was never selected, that he probably wondered if he was cursed. Maybe I am cursed. My lot never comes up. I wonder if it will ever come up. But finally, now in his old age, he gets his chance to get as close to the presence of the Lord as was possible for a man in that day and age. And yet, even as he goes inside, he has to be weighed down by the reality. The truth is nobody outside was excited for him to go in. I'm sure some of them were probably wondering, why would God listen to his prayer? He won't even give him a kid. Why would God honor his prayer? Why God pick this guy to go in today? I wonder, some of them probably wonder, I bet he won't even come out alive. He's cursed by God. Well, even though everybody thought that, God's about to do something no one expects. Look at verse 11. It says, and there appeared unto him, so he goes in with the incense, and there appeared unto him there an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense so there'd be no one else there. The veil would be on the outside as well, the curtain to go into the holy place as well so nobody could see this happening. Nobody would be there with him. As he goes in to offer the incense, standing on the right side of that altar, that golden altar is an angel of the Lord. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. That word troubled is a, a bit light of a word. It means to experience acute emotional distress or anxiety. You ever had a panic attack? That's kind of Zacharias. Feeling right now. He's, you know, this is my moment. Okay, this is it. God, I know I know people say I'm cursed, but Lord, I love you and I feel like I know you, and I'm gonna bring my prayer anyway. And as he gets to go bring that prayer, all of a sudden, hi, (laughs) there's this angel in his presence. And it just fear falls upon him. Maybe he thought, maybe God has cursed me and now he's come to judge me, or maybe the angel's here to tell me to leave because God won't hear my prayers. But you know, the beautiful thing is that. The angel isn't there to send him away. The angel's there because he has some good news. Verse 13. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness. And many shall rejoice at his birth. You know, the angel brings three blessings here to Zacharias. And the first one is, there's nothing to fear. Nothing to fear, Zach. You don't need to worry about a thing. Do you realize that with your own difficulties? Your situation might give good reasons to fear, but the Lord is right there with you even though you can't see him right now. There are many things that we come across. We think, God, how am I gonna get through this? Or Lord, what do I do? Lord, where do I even take the next step? But the Lord, even when it's not apparent that he's working, even when it's not apparent that he's there, even when there's lots of reasons for us to feel afraid, we don't have to be afraid because the Lord has good news for us. He's with us. Now, the second blessing that the angel gives is he reminds him that he's not forgotten. He says, fear not, and then he calls him by name, Zacharias. Do you know what the name Zacharias means? It comes from the Old Testament word, Zachariah, and it means remembered by God. Isn't that cool? I imagine there's probably times that people are like, remembered by God, how about forgotten by God? That sounds like the name he should have got. And yet his name, it was true. God hadn't forgotten them. He says here, For your prayer is heard. Listen, if anyone felt forgotten, it was this couple. And yet God says, I know your name. I know your situation. And I haven't forgotten you for a moment. Do you realize that God hasn't forgotten you? That He knows your name? He knows your specific trials and challenges? He knows your specific needs? He hasn't forgotten you, He's heard your prayers. See, God had heard, even though nothing had been done up to this point. In fact, literally in the the Greek, it means your prayer was heard. So it's not is heard, like now, hey, I've finally heard your prayer, Zacharias. No, it was heard. I heard it the moment you prayed it, the first time you prayed it. When you and Elizabeth first started to wonder if you were going to have problems having children, and you began to pray and say, Lord, this isn't happening, so will you please open Elizabeth's womb? Will you please give us a child, Lord? We would love to bring a child into the world and to love them and bless them. From that first moment when you first prayed that prayer, I heard. I heard. Do you know that God hears those prayers that are prayed for years that seem to have no answers? I want to encourage you don't give up. Don't think God doesn't care because He does. He misses nothing, He forgets nothing. What does it say? In the Old Testament, in Genesis, when it says Noah has been out on the ark for a bunch of days and the Lord remembered Noah, I think is what it says. It's not like they were up in heaven and I you know and it was, you know, Christmas time and stuff and they were partying and whatever. And all of a sudden it's like, oh man, that's right. Noah's out on the ocean. That's not what it means. God didn't just forget Noah. When it means he remembers, it means he begins to work in an active way in that person's life again. And, you know, when he tells him here, you know, Zacharias, I heard you, but now I'm going to move actively to answer that prayer. And so the third blessing is he announces that you're finally going to have a child. He says, your wife, Elizabeth, verse 13, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you shall have joy and gladness. John's name, it's interesting, God gives his name. Usually we choose the name for our kids, right? But God gives this baby his name, and his name means God shows grace. Isn't that a great name? God shows grace. Being a Christian isn't about moping around because I'm so sinful. It's about rejoicing because God is so good. That's what it's about. I mean, we sing songs you know, about our, our sin and our shame, but what, where does those songs go? You've washed it away, right? You've cleansed us. You've changed us. You know, you're working in us. We have great joy because he is good. I hold my head high because he loves me and he's changing me from glory to glory, right? See, I can smile because I'm his in spite of my sin. And he wants to bestow blessings upon me in spite of my inability to ever deserve them. That's why I smile. John's birth would not just be joy for them. They would be cause for joy for many others, it says here. And many shall rejoice at his birth. Why? Well, because John is going to usher in the day that everyone in Israel has been waiting for. Verse 15. Why will they be rejoicing at his birth? For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Here we see the reason that many will rejoice is because of John's special calling. John's special calling, he says here, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord. The word they're great means important. John's calling will be important to God's plan. It's interesting, it says he's great in the sight of the Lord, though. Many followed John. Millions of people on the earth had no clue who he was during his life. No clue. And many in Israel rejected his ministry. Many in Israel didn't take heed to his call to repent and to prepare their hearts for the Lord's coming. And yet, The Bible says that he was an important part of God's plan. Let me ask you a question. Is being an important part of God's plans good enough for you? Or do you need the pats on the back of everybody else? Do you need the recognition of everybody else to say, oh, I see that you have an anointing on your life. Oh, I see that you're called. Oh, I see that you're gifted. Oh, I know God's gonna use you in miraculous ways. Do you need that? Do you crave that? Being important to God and being an important part of God's plan needs to be all that we need. That needs to be the thing that drives us, the thing that keeps us going. Because if you're looking for that from others, here's what's going to happen. Instead of serving others, you're going to be hurting others. Because you're seeking to be served instead of to serve them. You're seeking for some type of recognition, some type of acclaim, some type of just feeling of worth that other people are giving to you instead of recognizing and go, God, I'm a great part of your plan. I'm an important part of your plans for for my society, my church, my life, my family, my work. And then what happens is it doesn't matter whether the boss recognizes you or not. It doesn't matter whether anybody else in the church recognizes you or not. You say, Lord, I'm an important part of what, what you're doing because you've called me to this and that's good enough for me. You know, so often I seek validation for others and it's one of the greatest downfalls that we can have in serving the Lord. We hold back, we don't do something because we think, well, I don't know if anybody else recognizes I'm called. Or, and I'm not trying to make fun of you when you say that, I just know I've said that and that's the tone I say it in. Well, I don't know, I don't know if God you know, really wants to use me, uh, nobody else seems to think so. Or we, we jump out into places where we shouldn't be trying to get people to recognize us. And either way, we end up hurting others, either by lacking in our service or by putting ourselves in places God hasn't sent us. I remember when I graduated from college, and man, I I was as amped up as could be. God called me to plant a church in Central Florida. And man, we're gonna take over Central Florida for Jesus. There won't be an unbeliever for miles. And that's how I really thought. I thought, man, it's gonna be revival. It's gonna be just, there ain't nothing stopping us. Church had shrunk. We started off the Bible study with like eight people or 10 people. And I think by the time we started Sunday services, we had two. Humbles you real quick. I guess I'm not the next best thing since the Apostle Paul. I was at a a pastor's meeting and a good friend said to me, he said, well, see, God's more interested in you than he is in what you can do for him. How about you stay focused on that? See, when we're looking for that validation, it can become very discouraging when we don't see it. We have to know that God is pleased with what we're doing because we're being obedient to him. Because we love him and we're serving him because we love him. That has to be enough for us. You can't decide and say, well, you know, I'm going to be part of the hospitality team because, you know, everybody's going to know how good of a cook I am and they'll just see it and be all happy. Well, maybe nobody tells you. Well, you can't go grab your cart and go run up there and throw your food down, you know, and walk off. You can't do that because you're going to hurt people In, in the same way with any ministry here. Why didn't I get picked for this? Why didn't I get chosen for that? Listen, all of us love being loved. Who doesn't love being loved? I used to ask this question every Sunday after I taught. And, but it would wait. You know, would be like, so, babe, how was your morning? Oh, that, that was nice. I talked to some people. Anything else happen, you know? Maybe God speak to you miraculously. You know, thunderbolts in the heart. You know, anything like that? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, nothing special. Oh, nothing special. Huh? I guess the message wasn't too good. What are you talking about, message? I thought a message was just great. Well, yeah, whatever. You know, you think about friends you talk to, you think about this. I don't even ask that question anymore. And here's why, because it doesn't matter. Because if I can step down and say, God, I gave that to you and I faithfully delivered what you told me to do and faithfully served in whatever capacity you wanted me to, then that was my offering to him. He's pleased. And that's the only smile I
1: need. God is more interested in our personal relationship to him than anything we can do for him. The goal and ultimate calling for our lives is that we would know God that we would walk alongside Him and know His ways. So then when we look at our own individual callings and giftings, we can find that these things are not what define us nor give us true satisfaction. What is required of us is faithfulness and obedience to whatever God has asked us to do. So, will you be faithful? Will you walk with God into all that He has for you? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.